0: So, welcome to the second episode of the Black and Green Podcast. It is February 15th, 2018, and uh, you might notice that yesterday was the first episode, and asking yourself if this is going to be a daily thing, the answer is unequivocally no. But uh, copies of Gathered Demands and my new book, Through Black and Green Press, are supposed to be here today, and I was planning on uh, putting together orders tonight and uh, shipping delay put them to tomorrow so uh wasn't going to be writing so here i am um guess to give a little more background turns out people get very enthusiastic about podcasts who knew probably most people probably should have been me either way um i figure i'll we'll give a little more background about myself very quickly um just for people who are not aware um if you're curious uh black and kevin there's a lot more stuff there there's a lot of writing interviews things like that but i am an anarcho primitivist which means i am a green anarchist against civilization uh and i've written well, my second book is coming out it's called gathered remains my first one uh was for wildness and anarchy uh and it was a both those are collections of essays a lot of those essays from the first one are online um Second one not so much. The first one is sold out. For Wildness Anarchy is sold out. I do plan on putting out a second edition this year. Uh, it takes money, so if you're interested, check out the books. Uh, check out Black and Green Reviews, a project that I am the founding editor of. Uh, we started back in uh, first issue came out in spring of 2015. We're on issue five right now. That came out last month, and um, we are looking down. Uh, Having number six out uh, this fall, winter, maybe earlier. I discussed it a little bit last night, but who knows? We'll see how things go. Uh, I am a fan of uh, anarchy in action in terms of uh, heckling. So um, I get a bit of a reputation uh, for being a dick, and uh, it's not necessarily undeserved, and you could say, I don't give a damn about my dad reputation. World's in trouble. There's no communication. Everyone can say what they want to say. But firm believer uh, in undermining what John Zerzan pointedly called nicism. Uh i Just, you know, get sick of people going in circles and, uh, it you know, all it's not how you say it. It's what you say. It's bullshit. Uh, it's what you mean what you're saying, what you're getting at. Uh, That's what I care about. I care about the content more than the delivery. And uh, so that's that. Uh, Might explain a little bit if you're not familiar with me and or my demeanor, but it's probably going to be fairly obvious if you are listening to this, if you're choosing to continue listening to this uh, and uh, anything else like that. Uh, So the other thing, one of the things about this podcast is that I spend every night reading and writing. Uh, and I also end up spending a lot of time in very lengthy email exchanges and things like that. Uh, some are good. Some are not so good. Uh, some are obnoxious. Some are great. Some are horrible, whatever. It's uh, kind of how communication works. If not, all conversations are good. I trust most people would be familiar with. It's like is like that thing you do on Facebook, except not um, it's, you know, dealing with actual people and, you know, hopefully just not responding to everything and uh, actually having a discussion. But um, my hope is in a way that this podcast can answer more questions at one time uh, for what that's worth. So uh, it gives me more time to write. So basically it's a lot easier for me to say something into a microphone uh, than it is for me to answer the same question over email, many many times. That said, not trying to discourage people, but uh, I can be pretty bad about email communication sometimes, and it's usually because email is always competing with my writing and research time, which I value very highly. So hopefully this is educational. Hopefully this is informative. Hopefully this is worth listening to. Uh, and uh, yeah, sorry about uh, sorry about any of my other quirks that you're going to have to deal with at the time. Uh, and you know, probably not a lot of people just listening because my beautiful voice triggers their ASMR, but what do you know? So on with the first part, uh, for those who are aware, there was a large school shooting in Florida yesterday. For those who are not aware, for those who are listening in the future, my reference to a school shooting in Florida might not be tied to the one that actually happened yesterday. It could be anytime These things happen all the time. And in fact, uh I think the number was one school shooting every sixty hours in twenty eighteen. Pretty insane thing. It's a very civilized thing and it's particularly uh a very American kind of thing. Uh so John Zerzan had a letter to the editor about it and as always John is much more better or much more better. Much better had a uh, very poignant uh, responses. So I'm going to go ahead and read this one that he sent out because fucking nails it. Uh, the mass shootings go on and on. We know that this phenomenon is about two things, guns and mental health, except it really isn't about either. It's about the nature of society. When life has retreated to the cyber screen, when community is gone, when technological mass society means that people are increasingly isolated, cut adrift, environmental catastrophe is arriving and social life is more and more degraded and in retreat and it makes almost zero difference who is president it's looking like the last stage of the last civilization time to snap out of it jay-z gotta love john i always love john so you know i mean i think that so much of this supposed conversation that happens every time around this is trying to kind of obfuscate a lot of Points about uh, society in general and really focus on, uh, you know, what's guns or, or gun, at, gun access, guns' rights. And it really becomes this issue of, you know, you're either for against gun control, or you're for against more mental background checks or whatever, whatever it is. And ultimately, it just comes down to more and more control. And I think a lot of people feel that uh, they kind of have to take a side on that. And it comes down a lot of times to, You know, are you pro or anti gun? Um, I'm anti technology. I got guns. I mean, some things are going to not just be some simple kind of constructed moral quandary. Uh, I think that there's a lot of answers to questions like that uh, about what it boils down to and what you would do that really just have to do with the scale of society. And it's like to try and take a stance on any of it in terms of gun control and things like that it just completely misses the point and i think as john very succinctly showed uh or mentions that uh you know this is a much more complicated thing we created the society uh and it just is beyond any human scale and so all these things that would otherwise be picked up be responded to by community responded to by other individuals where somebody could step in and intervene instead of, you know, Hey, this person read a bunch of white nationalist shit on Facebook or whatever on YouTube, whatever kind of shit they're doing, potentially doing drills with, um, you know, some fucked up neo-Nazi, all right, uh, shitheads and things like that to prepare for this and having, of course, the legal and, uh, almost social backing to, do the kind of shit they're doing potentially could have been worse or more targeted. Not to say it wasn't anything. 17 people were dead so far. Uh, but you know, we just go to the same point all the time. Like, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to fix this? How are we going to deal with the society? And it's a fake conversation. All these things people want to talk about, about like, you know, this is the conversation we're having. And of course, right now, especially in a time where, uh, social media is such a huge thing. Um, any of these, these supposed conversations last as long as a news cycle and then it comes and goes. It'll get brought up again because it's going to happen again. Uh, although with like the, the insane wave of shit that's happening in, in the perpetual news cycle right now, for the most part, this, this stuff isn't even getting reported on. It's not getting much attention. And again, I think it kind of comes back to this whole disaster fatigue um, and feelings of helplessness and feelings of hopelessness which aren't unwarranted in these kinds of cases. And I mean, uh, it's something that I'm definitely very cognizant of, uh, especially when I'm out with my daughters and things like that, I try to avoid public places. I don't like cities in the first place, but you know, always kind of being conscientious when you're around a crowd or something like that. And it's, uh, a crazy situation to be in. you you realize that you're in the situation where anybody that's around you could break at any given time. Um, so the kind of, segue that a little bit here. Uh, violence was the subject of an essay of mine called society without strangers. It was in black and green review number four, which is actually almost sold out. So if you're interested, uh, black green there are still there. I'm going to post up the, uh, PDF version because people have requested that, especially because international shipping really fucking sucks. Um, And it's been kind of cost prohibitive for a number of people. Uh, But I will have that uh, available. But in the meantime, number four, and I do strongly encourage people to actually get the physical books. The idea being that, you know, it's not going to be the same kind of shit that you see on the internet and kind of having these experiences going back to Nicholas Carr and the shallows and talking about the way that we interact with electronic information where we're just kind of clicking through and never actually absorbing things versus the experience of a book where, ideally you're isolating it, paying attention and taking the content seriously and the format, uh, matches that. But, uh, this book, or I'm sorry, this essay Society Without Strangers, there's, there's a couple of them that are essays that had been kind of th- theoretically and, and in terms of the research been putting together for a very long time. Uh and they're, they're large. They're fairly large. Both those essays are about 30,000 words. This one hooked on a feeling. Uh, and uh, really trying to touch on a number of things. So there's no real good uh, elevator version of what this is about. But effectively, what it comes down to is a discussion about uh, what is violence, and kind of trying to break away from the civilized dualisms that we have about violence where we're treating it as like a thing to uphold or a thing to abhor, you know, and you see this within every sect you see it on the left, you see it on the right, you see it with conservatives, you see it with liberals, uh, you know, people kind of taking this total fascination with, with guns and militarized violence and revolutionary ideals and stuff like that. Uh, and then on the other side, just very, you know, extremist kind of stuff. You talk about ISIS, you can even say as with this Florida shooter today that a member of a, some shit i think it was republic of florida some white nationalist group very isis like went ahead and jumped on and said hey this kid uh did some training drills with us we we might have bought him one of his guns um just all this kind of crazy shit where it's just like uh propaganda machines and and dogmatic self-serving crazy kind of shit that you look at and you're like how does this actually work uh and the reality of it is that we're a lot of broken people and we're looking for anywhere that gives us meaning because of course the sacred self is the primary target of domestication. It's the ultimate sales pitch. You are special. Even in death, you can mean something if you're part of our cause. Uh, and It's just really part of this revolutionary idealism and philosophical ideological garbage that ideally we get rid of at some point and we can start to work on to shred that. Um, so that's important. But, my goal is to say in here and hopefully I do is that our relationship to violence is based off reification based off of turning the idea of violence into a thing. Uh, and realistically violence is a part of life. It's a emotion. It's a response. It doesn't necessarily have to be murdering people. It doesn't necessarily have to be a lot more than, or, you know, of course it doesn't have to be a fucking mass shooting. Um, but it it really just is a part of the world, and of course, as uh, obligate carnivores ourselves, and even you know, looking at herbivores and things like that, you see outbursts of violence all the time, and they don't necessarily mean much. What's more important is that wild societies, and uh, particularly the wild societies of uh, our nomadic hunter gatherer ancestors, and this within primal anarchy, are these primal anarchistic societies they had multiple means of conflict resolution so the importance and the counterpoint of violence within all these societies is to show to be aware of the potential for violence and then find other ways to resolve situations where violence might otherwise occur so looking at other methods of conflict resolution so society without strangers is looking at conflict resolution in terms of uh, how primarily it's starting out how hunter gatherers found other ways to deal with the potential for violence. And it goes back to, you know, raising their children to resolve. And, and of course, big thing being to just be nomadic, being able to not have this group identity and not being tied to a garden, not being tied to a warehouse or stir uh, surplus shed or something like that storage sheds and just being an individual who's capable of going off on your own, going and joining another band, going and joining another camp. If there's, irresolvable tensions just walk away from it that's all there is to it the core of these societies and the core of the way that they function is by recognizing the way that things can go bad and having a society that's capable of dealing with them without the violence and if the violence does break out having ways of reconciling that having ways of moving beyond it uh, and doing so without a kind of moralistic framework and you know you can kind of look at of course one of the big things with say Moralism from monotheistic religions say thou shalt not kill. Of course, these motherfuckers kill a lot of people, but uh, you know, you could kind of say it's like you, you shouldn't kill. But in the case of a nomadic band of gather hunters where there's 25 to 100 people in a band or a camp at any one time, and somebody does kill somebody, you know, if the other people have to deal with that person, then you know, then there's a moral code, and so really. Uh, another point in this essay is that moralism is the creation of of uh, larger scale societies. Our move from this ban life, this natural kind of anarchistic mode of existence into a position where we have to have response to uh, an existential crisis. There, how do we respond to this as a whole or as a society? Because how are we going to function? How are we going to deal with it? And I'm going to get to this in the following this part whatever, I don't know sections, but I'm not sectioning anything. So who fucking cares? The, the next thing I talk about, about my hatred of philosophy, but in practice, you can kind of see where all of these things that we know about moralism and philosophy and ideology and the state and idea and uh, law and religion are really just meant to ordain and micromanage the necessary, the becoming necessary consequences Of removing ourselves from these primal anarchistic situations where things just worked and people had the ability to move on they had the ability to deal with conflict uh and resolve it uh the the other side of this is being the conflict resolution and and healing and bonding aspects of uh the trance stances and things like that amongst nomadic hunter gatherers and some rituals uh that's unhooked on a feeling sorry Another subject, but you know, just to kind of position those things and where I'm coming from with them. I see society without strangers and hooked as two sides of the same coin, both dealing with conflict resolution and the overarching thing of all my work. If you're not familiar, is uh, understanding primal anarchy and how domestication undermines that. In particular, uh, how looking at domestication in, in minutia and seeing how that was a response to our kind of human nature and our, our innate rejection of elements of control and elements of, you know, a kind of artificial hierarchical order. Uh, So yeah, that's that. So in the scheme of things, that's for these essays fit the overarching point is that we want to talk about violence. We want to talk about mass shooting in terms of, well, how are we going to correct this? And if we're not talking about civilization as a whole, then we're missing the entire point. We're not going to solve any of civilization's crises through them. And in fact, as John pointed out, and he's pointed out many times before mass shooting is just one indication of civilization in crisis itself. Like this is the ultimate manifestation where you're supposedly sending your kids to learn somewhere, which is, you know, bullshit in its own regards, but, uh, send them off to school. And then another kid who's just alienated, disconnected, disinterested, it's just going to take a gun and end it all. Obviously, there's issues with the guns existing in the first place, and if we never had them, civilization wouldn't still be here. So if I could go back in time and take away a couple technologies, maybe a fantasy round for the another episode, we'll see. Uh, guns are pretty high up there. Plows also being up there as well. Just never being able to forge steel. We would have been a lot better off. This world would have been a lot better off without all these things. But they're here. So I'm not gonna try and construct some moralistic framework to say how do we deal with the things that are here other than saying and the society that makes and uses them. So much more complicated than that. We can get into that later. But for now I wanted to read a bit from this, uh which is something I am not fond of, which is reading my own work aloud. Uh but uh, I in particular in this instance i think that it might be pretty relevant so uh again this is from society with the Str- uh, society without strangers black green review number four also in gathered remains which should have been here today will be here tomorrow by the time you're hearing this it is available blackgreenreview.org all right so the story begins by talking about the situation with um among the the Kung uh, in which a a guy named Tui had, he's just kind of lost it. Um, A lot of background to that story. uh, And this is not me reading it. This is not how I write. Sorry, it's just how I discuss. Um, But to give the background, he had just kind of snapped one day and he had uh, killed other people before. Um, And in this case, he had just, shot off poison arrow at a person and hit them. And the whole band had just, just had it, just said, this is enough, this person has to end. Uh, and they got into a battle or a fight with him shooting arrows and at a certain point he had gotten hit with a poison arrow and he just said, you know, that's it, I'm done. Threw his weapons aside, just end me, and they killed him. Um, it's a fascinating story for me, which is why I opened this piece with it. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of people, Ted Kaczynski among them, who would say is like any instance of violence, Rhodes, what he would believe is the liberal basis of anarcho primitivism a garbage argument if there ever was one. And all this talk about how anarcho primitivists is supposedly cherry-picked so that everything within uh, hunter-gatherer life was all dandy and fine and everybody was just happy and communing with nature constantly, which is not what we're ever trying to present. I mean, there's no, you know, talking about human nature, talking about, Uh, the value of of wildness and the 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 importance of just you know life and the the interrelationships between all living and wild beings uh is much more complicated than just saying it's like oh here's the lion sleeping next to the lamb or some kind of weirdo religious moralistic heaven scenario or whatever uh and I actually think in this case, the ability to just say, this is how this band chose to deal with this problem. Because at the end of the day, there's no prison, there's no police, there's no system that they can just throw this person into because they've done something awful. Uh, and at the end of the day, there's that recognition that this is somebody that we're going to have to deal with. It's not just like we bury this person and we pushed him out of town or some shit. And now it's somebody else's problem. We don't have to deal with it. They had to deal with that person. So they dealt with it. Again, another reason why moralism is kind of a garbage situation. The people who killed him weren't murders; They were, well, I mean, technically they were, but I mean, there was no moralistic quagmire. There was no convening of the councils and saying this is what we're going to do. It's just an innate visceral response. We cannot deal with this person. We cannot deal with the harm that they're causing. So they respond to it. All that is to say... This is the preface for why I'm mentioning a person named Twee in this section. All right, so let's be reading now. Perhaps those who seek authority are not unlike Twee. The ability to kill on mass scale, to order the death of thousands, if not millions, from afar takes a certain kind of psychotic personality. The very person that most likely never was checked by parents and other children in a bobe kind of environment. Perhaps those individuals would kill in any society, regardless of their upbringing or any attempt to resolve or dissolve conflicts before they mounted. It's nearly impossible for us to say, as nearly every person alive, even within recent memory, has has not been a stranger to civilization and its systemic violence in one form or another. But we have unquestionable evidence that even if these personalities had existed, a society without strangers created coping mechanisms for dealing with them when they get out of hand. Civilization, on the other hand, has found ways to empower them. You have this constant current throughout the history of civilization of patterns of behavior that are unusually vicious, even for societies with militaries, that is societies where there are not only specialists in killing, but specialists in strategized mass killing and technocrats dedicating their life to increasing the ability to kill more efficiently. At the outposts of civilizations you have a civilization you have systemic empowerment of an unhinged psychotics like King Leopold II of Belgium, who built an empire of terror in the Congo on the fortunes of rubber a man who took hands and feet of slaves for not meeting his imposed rubber quotas and killed with absolute indifference to foster his own power. He became the influence for the character of Kurtz, an ivory trader in Joseph Joseph Conrad's Hearts of Darkness. His source of power became interchangeable because this bloodthirsty king of the frontier story rises again and again throughout the history of civilization. We have child-sacrificing Mayan kings and the decapitating soldiers of the Caliphate, like the Old World Crusaders and New World Colonials, and they are all part of the ongoing expansion of the civilization that we inhabit. Technology scales carnage, though some acts might be more brutal than others. It is only because they can be. Warfare, within modernity, can be waged by technicians. While politicians are quick to rile up public support for their killing, the needs of civilization are a more rational sort protect resources to maintain order to advance territory and eliminate potential threats. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Uh, all of us, as we have clearly seen are equally capable of breaking quote cage creatures show much more apparent behavior and quote Paul Shepard writes quote including psychotic fits of bloody carnage and many of the same sympt- psychotic symptoms as humans in our developed nations and quote. And with the technology of civilization, the death count increases exponentially. So while the kind of psychotic murder that we've empowered with technology and given authority through politics may have existed at any point in our nomadic forager past, there were social mechanisms to cope with them. They risked being shunned or exiled. They had to know their potential victims and face their kin. They weren't given more authority. They weren't given more justifications. They weren't rewarded with more efficient killing technology. And if all else failed, they face the unrelenting spears and arrows of an egalitarian society capable of handling them. That's that section. And then let's keep ahead. to the next section. And, um, all right. Let me see if I want to read all this part. It's worth reading. I should say that, but, uh, Let's see, let's read a little bit here. All right, so what do we do about this? How do we respond to a globalized civilization and its implicit violence? There's no simple question and there are no simple answers, but we have plenty to work with. For me, the question of conflict resolution is both empowering in terms of how societies can function without the law and in exposing the fragility of domestication. The state is built upon technology and that is neither a small feat nor a minor footnote in the history of civilization and systemic violence. As we see every day, when people stand up to power, They face the blunt force of its physical brutality. The law serves it well to lock away potential threats. But it is is fragile in the sense that it works because we are trained to ignore the potential to deal with each other without the inclusion of state infrastructures, that is, without prisons and police. The state is strong if we continue to see resistance only on civilization's terms, limited by law and the ownership of violence. If you focus on the source of that power, technology, or to be more specific, for our current world, electricity, then things look very different in order to understand and undermine civilization on that level we have to go back to the beginning why do primal anarchistic societies function the answer is community namely egalitarian communities built on the foundation of flux and fluidity for us i'm talking about building communities of resistance As I have argued elsewhere and repeatedly, the sources of indigenous resistance, in contrast to revolutionary movements, lie within the strength of communities. Revolutions are fought for ideologies. They are fought to correct the wrongs of the state and the want to reshape the enlightened future society upon which the failures of the existing, of the failures of the existing empires. Needless to say, even when they are successful, it is hard to argue that they are more appealing. Radicals and extremists, in many ways, simply mimic the form of religious death cults, most notably, in our times, ISIS. The vision of the caliphate and the righteousness of the martyr need no real-world actualization. In offering the promise of life after living, the martyr is the ultimate ideologue. By the time they are able to be disappointed about the future that wasn't awaiting them, it's too late to matter. Being untethered by the existing world, the relentless nihilism of indiscriminate murder sadly draws a new kind of allure. Terrorism grants an escape from the consequences of being dispossessed by the domestication process it gives vindication to an unending to ending an unfulfilling life a justification that serves as the only difference between the two ideologically or technologically infused archetypes of modernity the suicide bomber and the mass shooter wink wink we get the point we get to this point because we believe the domesticators innate lie authority lies within the law and the power of authority lies in its, in its monopolization of violence so long as violence remains reified So long as violence becomes and remains a thing, it has a lure. It becomes a tool of liberation just as much as the functional force of conquest. If the end goal of revolution, true to its innately political nature, is the conquest of of authority, then time is always working against it. The Soviets who fought in the Russian Revolution might have had the numbers to take on tanks and cannons. I suspect they wouldn't have fared quite as well against drones, nor would we. But it is the demystification of violence that creates the potential to erode the sanctity of authority and to understand, much like egalitarian nomadic forgers, that there are ways to mitigate and dissolve tension without violence. In a world of billions of people, it is vital to recognize that it is not the lives of individuals that seal our fate, but the technology that grants individuals the power to wield authority or coerce systemic violence. It is the domestication process that keeps us in line and keeps us from viewing civilization as a failed attempt at creating a biological organism and acting upon it. In the words of John Bodley, quote, civilizations are an artificial cultural constructs or artificial co- cultural constructions, sorry, not biological organisms. And they would be poor biological form performers if we insisted on considering them in organ- as organisms. Organisms. He must have just written it that way not my fault i'm sure end quote civilizations are not alive but they are parasitic they demand the wholesale consumptions of entire ecosystems of devouring their wild hosts civilizations may not be biological organisms but their existence demands that they act like one so that they can die like them so that they can die like biological organisms like its forebears the civilization too will die the decaying infrastructure of a technological reign crosses the span of nations and oceans the precision of its war machine and logistics lie in the precision of satellites and cell phone towers, neither of which is impervious to destruction, intentional or not. The Earth, uh, the Earth decimating ability of power stations can be undone by storms as well as sabotage. The perpetuation of its growth and its dependent upon, is dependent upon agriculture production as its primary crops continue to be threatened and tainted by climate instability. Its need for an unrelenting stream of finite resources remains undeterred. It's bloated and overwhelming rendition of a biological organism. Unlike its ever-growing harness of militaristic force is exceptionally fragile and vulnerable. Humanity has survived millions of years of evolution by embracing fluidity and flexibility. There's no reason to believe that our biology can't outlast the synthetic one of the state. And end quote. And scene. All right. So. more of the story anti-moral of the story to be more consistent with my wording uh is that the entire issue of violence is not as simple as just saying you know more guns less guns more control less control more background checks more political interference or anything like that but to just say the state is a failure civilization is a failure and their ability to control any of this is really just trying to keep 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag as long as they possibly can to keep the veneer up, to let us believe that they actually can control anything about our world, anything about us and anything about the way we react. And the fact that people are breaking so much, the fact that people are going so far to find any kind of out. And the fact that people are willing to take a gun into a high school or to a mall or to anything or strap a bomb to themselves just to, kill as many people as they possibly can, is absolutely an indication of how far this civilization has taken us from where we need to be and how far it has removed us from that community that we we need as social animals. And so, to me, that's kind of the answer, is that none of the above. Civilization is not going to get us there. Civilization is not going to fix this. We're better off as soon as we realize that. So before I jump ship here to the next topic, let's have a little interlude uh and relates to uh the work the book I'm currently working on right now of God's and Country, uh about the origins or the subtitle is the domestication of our world and uh, about the origins of uh religion kind of tribal nationalist identity uh and patriarchy but really uh uh juxtaposing all that with the uh, missionary conquest, missionary contact throughout the world, which uh, really just put our extremely disconnected, hierarchical, nationalistic, colonizing, conquering uh, modernity in direct confrontation with people who had uh, no gods, as, as Durkheim would quote, or as Durkheim would argue, in a way through his definitions and how I'm arguing. It's uh, again uh, another subject, but. I like to intersperse this because, of course, if you're having a lot of knowledge here, a lot of research or anything like that that you want to share, always open to more. Missionaries do an exceptional job of trying to hide their atrocities and hide their day-to-day activities. But uh, as a lot of the work focuses on the largest missionary organizations, particularly uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators slash Summer Institute of Linguistics, and New Tribes Missions, which is now Ethnos 360. Some very evil motherfuckers. Uh, there tends to be kind of a fading into the background of some of the other ones out there. So piggybacking off the conversation about violence, i talking about the land or hunter-gatherers in Malaysia um, had a particularly strong tendency towards nonviolence that they instill um, in their children, the way they interact with each other. Uh, and it turns out to be a very important part of their society. Of course, the hunter gather reactions to violence, the hunter gather reactions to uh, conflict resolution can be very different from society to society and things like that, but uh, it even band to band at times. But again, it all comes down to that recognition of these are things that can happen and trying to build up conflict resolution to avoid them completely. And in this case, uh, it turns out that the Lanho leno uh reaction rejection of violence uh and their the preference for conflict resolution actually was one of the primary means of uh keeping them from converting to islam which uh, they had a lot of muslim missionaries coming against them uh so there's a couple quotes that i will pull quickly from this excellent book by uh Dallos. dalos uh, from Equality to Inequality, Social Change Among Newly Sedentary Lano uh, Hunter-Gatherer traders of Pelinsula, Peninsular Malaysia. This book came out in 2011. really good book. Um, she's actually going to be speaking at Shags, the Conference on Hunting and Gathering Societies as well. Also in the uh, Anarchism and Hunter-Gatherers section, which is pretty awesome. And I'm uh, looking forward to reaching out to her, but this book is good. Really solid one. Uh, and let's see. So, to give a, a kind of baseline for how they saw it, these are a couple quotes from the Lano themselves. On the outside, we are Muslim. On the inside, we are Lano, as before. We like to be free. We don't like to follow any religion. Just kind of talking about having to put up errors a little bit for the. Uh, Government bureaucrats, uh, and then their actual response, their actual feelings. If you don't believe us, don't come back. And you don't. You can also take your mosque with you, in terms of how they really feel about the uh, Muslims being there and about any kind of religion being pushed upon them uh, against their hunter gatherer wants and needs. Uh, so interesting as well that their views about violence were one of the reasons they pushed away alcohol at the settlements. Um, which is one of the great undoings of contact is to introduce alcohol. And of course, when you add alcohol to any situation, you're going to get more violence. So they recognize that immediately. Um, and instead of just kind of pushing themselves more towards this complacent uh, drunkenness and, and fighting and infighting actively kind of saw the thing. And this, this again, the nonviolence principles that they had developed really, bolstered this anti-colonial anti-missionary uh aspect of their societies which i think is really awesome so that um just want to read this other quote because i love it and um sometimes the easiest way to argue with religion has nothing to do with the context of uh the supposed holy books or whatever the uh fan fiction of patriarchs and so this is their response to the views that they say of where the, uh, the Muslims, everything in this world is dirty, even the waterfall is dirty. When the melee says the food you eat is not clean, I tell him you throw dead cats, dogs, and birds into the river. The fish you eat the fish eat the dead bodies. Then you catch the fish, make a nice curry of it, say yum yum, tasty. Now that is halal for you. So often overlooked are Muslim missionaries and. There's a hunter-gatherer response to their imposition and a big fuck you and also a big it's amazing that a part of our society actually carried on in order to help us resist your impositions. And for their behalf, the sooner we get rid of the threats, the sooner we get kill off civilization, the the sooner we can bleed it uh, and target the missionaries themselves, the better off their chances are of survival. Uh, So in the fucked up missionary quote of the cast this time again kind of bouncing back off this uh i wanted to get a little little backstory with this one i did post up on uh instagram uh a post for if people had done research on any of the stuff i was looking for more books on missionaries and more kind of uh tales to go along with this and i posted this quote from uh this missionary uh, in the 50s, uh, William Pennseal is in uh, Paraguay and Bolivia. He was an agent, of course, of helping kill off the indigenous people there. Uh, and the quote was, "It is better they should die than I baptize them and they go straight to heaven." Uh, and this is taken from uh, an essay by Louis Ferreira. Ferreira, uh, go forth in every part of the world and make its all nations my disciplines or disciples. Sorry, disciplines as well. Uh, the Bolivian Instance, which is from a book called Is God an American by Soren Havlickoff and Peter Aby, uh, which was put out by the International Work Group on Indigenous Affairs and Survival International in 1981. Um, it's a really good book, very overlooked, not always easy to find, but definitely worth reading and looking into. Uh, the fun part about that quote is, uh, don't mind baiting missionaries, just because I, I like to f- fight people i don't like uh quite often uh so my hope with posting some of that stuff sometimes is like let's drag them out and let's make them aware that they have an enemy uh and that they're not being unnoticed and so i had a missionary apologist respond to that saying it was a fake quote um it was never actually correctly attributed to him it was from an overly emotional and not academic source um and that uh wasn't even in the area at the time, which is bullshit. And even uh, Pencil's uh, obituary discussed him being in Bolivia at that time and working with the Arreo uh, the uh, people in terms of, you know, helping to commit ethnocide and kill them off. Uh, so kind of pushed him uh, and could see that he was trying to apologize for it and say it's like it couldn't have been true, this thing just blah, blah. blah these people are all anthropologists. It's everything in it is just documented as ethnographies and anthropological anthropological work is, you know, basically the whole thing held the ground and everything this person was saying was untrue. Just battled around with them, humiliated them a little bit. And, uh, they deleted it all, made it all gone, went away. Bye bye. Uh, Hey, if they want to come back, bring it back and argue some more, send an email to black and green press at gmail.com. And I'll humiliate you a little more and we'll have some fun with it. And you can, uh, Any other defenders of God out there or any other mythological creatures that have been used to justify or take part in the conquest of the world and colonization of the world, if you would like to represent them, you can send an email to the same account, blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. Let's have some fun. I don't mind fucking with your shit. What I do. Part of what I do. So that brings me to my next point. Uh, part of one of these back-and-forth email conversations I've had uh, recently, I had a first. Uh, today, where I was accused of being uh, anti-academic, and um, there was one other part. Yeah, I forget. We're having anti-academic undertones, which is a first. I think a lot of people probably have called me more academic, and I think most likely more anarchists have tried to write me off as being academic. Um, to me it's just kind of a, a stupid point and I think most often what happens is when people are saying that they're anti-academic or anything like that they're being kind of lazy now that said I am against uh, pointless droning on and just taking everything as though it's a mental adventure and there's something to solve here that has no real consequence in the world uh, everything I do is to hopefully understand and undermine the domestication process itself. It's the entire point of what I do. I make no question about it. I'm not willing to cheat or slight anything that I'm doing to try and attain that end, but I'm not going to lie. I, just, I mean, that's the fun part about being an anarchist. It's a fun part about self-publishing and things like that. It's not that I don't have standards, it's not that I don't have rigor. It's not that I don't, uh, intentionally deal often with people who I know are going to call me on my shit or just try and point things out and really take everything to task, which is a huge part of black and green views editorial board at times can be very contentious, but you know, we're not letting anybody just get away with anything. We want to fill in these gaps. We really want to expand this entire critique. We want to be able to really take all of these aspects to, to the furthest degree and to uncover things that hadn't been uncovered or hadn't been uncovered in the same context before and really kind of draw things together. I'm always interested in uh, writers and thinkers and and pieces that can pull things together from different realms. So talking about my own work, uh, it's ethology, ecology, anthropology, history, um, some sociology. I mean, I'm really interested in looking at very specific areas in relation to how we as social animals relate to each other and how we relate to the world and how domestication predictably undermines that. As I mentioned before, as I mentioned again, it's kind of my shtick. That's what it is. So it's an arduous process. And I mean, this is something that I spend pretty much all my time is doing research and writing and uh, going through and, and going through the sources and not having to hold up this journalistic notion as I was getting to with the, the idea of the fun part of this is that, we don't have to pretend that we have some kind of like neutral perspective here that we don't have to play these journalistic games of saying, it's like, Oh, we got to give the other side equal footing. It's like the entirety of history, the entirety of everything we're taught is the other side is the colonizer speaking and fuck them. Like, like you don't have to misrepresent them. Uh, but they do plenty awful on their own. Uh, so I don't need a defender and there's no need to, and there's no need to give people credit where it isn't due. Uh, call it as it is don't have to be nice about it i don't intend ever to be nice about it necessarily when it comes to representing the intentions wills and actions of colonizers Um, it's pretty big hefty fuck you to all of them and all their current and existing and past enforcers uh, and agents so that said i think that a lot of what happens within the anarchist scene is this kind of faux anti-intellectualism and faux kind of anti-academic. So it's basically saying that anything that's got citations, anything that's got research, anything that's got uh, this kind of arduous process behind it is untouchable, or it's just kind of like hoity-toity snooty university bullshit. Um, And, that said there's a lot of things produced that are exactly that I mean the academic machine really has existed in a lot of ways and just trying to find ways to perpetuate itself that stuff does exist it doesn't mean that everything ever produced by it at the same time is pointless um, so this is kind of a roundabout way of, of getting to this main point of this section whatever we're going to call it no borders here so It is what it is, Um, but uh, I hate philosophy. And for me, philosophy is all the worst things about academics. Uh, So kind of bringing it back to what I was getting to here was that we have to give people more credit for what they're capable of understanding uh, and where things are at. And if we kind of treat all these things as some kind of ivory tower situation or something like that. Like, yeah, I mean, it's just pedantic bullshit. You might as well be a missionary just telling people. It's like, we've got to give it to them in a way that they can understand it. Uh, you know, we have to be approachable. You know, I mean, I think that people are fully capable of understanding all the concepts that anarchists or anarcho primitivists or anything else like that are putting out there, uh, as long as they're grounded in reality. And it's like, domestication is not a complicated concept. And most people, understand the term at least on some level that can be explained further um or understood in context unless of course you're a philosopher and then it's just kind of a free fall but you know i don't really want to talk to philosophers this is where it gets down to but you know when you if you want to say that talking about hunter-gatherers or something like that is academic i mean it's super self-explanatory a hunter gatherer is a person who hunts and gathers a horticulturalist is a person who is a hunter gardener uh a Agricultures, person with farms. I mean, these are not concepts. In fact, they're so self-explanatory that it's kind of ridiculous to think in any any realm that discussing these things and to use these terms is like, you know, some other thing that people can't possibly understand. It's like, come on. Yeah, I think people understanding hunting and gathering is a, is a pretty low bar, and. You know, people can understand very complicated concepts. You see people, I've seen a lot of people that I, you know, would say had a lot of intelligence, however you want to put that, uh, or whatever. But, I mean, you know, they have their zone. They have their place that they talk about something. You know, you can talk about pharmaceuticals or something like that. These people are fucking doctors when it comes to that shit. They can tell you everything. They can tell you the side effects. We're capable of understanding all this shit. So all this pretentious kind of bullshit that exists and – in both the academic perspective and in both this faux ac- anti-academic thing uh, are really just pedantic versions of like we're having this conversation amongst ourselves and other people can't have it. Which is ultimately just another way of saying the shit we're talking about doesn't fucking matter to the rest of the world. And if it doesn't matter to the rest of the world, if it doesn't matter to the people, if you can't communicate your ideas without bringing a dictionary, uh, I don't want to read you. I mean, I'm I end up reading a lot of that stuff because like I said, I do a lot of research I do read a, read a ton of very dry academic anthropology and history and and things like that and you know there's times where I read it and it's just like okay here's a here's a very good point that I'm going to try and turn into something that's usable hopefully um, and there's other times where it's just like what is wrong with this careerist that they're just going to try and explain things in such a dry way and at the same time You can understand how colonialism works. You can understand how uh, all these different vestiges of colonialism continue to exist. And it's just because careerists talking about everything in detached, dry terms as to challenge the fact that or to not ever confront the fact that they're talking about the subjugation of people, places and the world around us. So it's all out there. Uh, I, you know, I think it's ridiculous to try and make a position of saying all this stuff is bad. All this stuff is, which I'm going to ironically do about philosophy, but that's another subject Um, or that all the, you know, all of history because history is the, the words of colonizers is, is going to necessarily be false. And therefore we can't know reality. We can't know any of the shit. You know, the world is out there. um, And I I think the important aspect where I try to drive home about my points about wildness, my points about being a hard gatherer and talking about human nature and things like that are that, is that all of these points are demonstrable All these things are, they're not philosophical concepts, concepts. They're not ideological concepts in the sense that like, this is me regurgitating my dogma for you to just believe, but to say, you know, the way that our, our eyes move, the way that our body wants to run, the way that we see here and interact with things are built upon this, hundreds of thousands of millions of years of evolution as nomadic hunter gatherers it's the way we see things the way we do things and when you look at things when you look at history as i do from a cultural materialist perspective you can just see patterns uh and these patterns are, are, are constantly being replicated and that's why i think it's important to look at the minutiae of domestication it's not that i'm saying any society that has some element of domestication is as fucked as the other it's not like i'm you know shitting on the Anami or shitting on the Sioux or anything like that it's just to say that we're in a unique position historically in this world for those of us in the first world those of us you know speaking English and listening to this podcast having a computer or something like that where we're facing the collapse of the civilization uh in our lifetimes are not or how fully it's going to be. It it is a process that can take hundreds of years and, you know, but rapid changes can happen very quickly where we have access to this thing within us. And we're looking at, you know, ways out we're looking at ways that we can live in communities, ways that we can deal with each other without the state or going back to conflict resolution, things like that. And there's all this hyperbole, hyperbole and all this talk about, you know creating some future society or whether or not you should even talk about creating some future society that just kind of carries with it a lot of very laughable historical inaccuracies and lack of awareness about history um but also you know delusions as to what it is we're capable of doing um there's a reason that nomadic hunter-gatherers took a very similar form and had functioned in very similar ways. Even if even if there's differences in ritual, even if there's differences in the way that hunting techniques worked, um, they all take basic forms. They all kind of respond to things in similar ways. Even if there's differences, there's still kind of a general response. It's conflict resolution through movement, through dancing, through singing. Um, they're universals, and there are some differences. You have the lano, who had very strict nonviolence. You had the Kung who you know, would execute a person who had gone crazy and killed people. Um, You have movement, you have flex within those things, but all in all, when you look at human societies, uh, like any other social animal, there's individuals and individual personalities and there's, there's changes from here to there. But for the most part, there's a core aspect of how they function and how we interact with the world that is replicated everywhere. And, Anywhere you see elements of domestication, whether we're talking about people settling, whether we're talking about people having gardens, whether we're talking about people having, you know, storehouses full of dried fish uh, proteins or, you know, whether they have row crops, Uh, all these aspects of domestication in terms of domestication of plants and animals and then the domestication of humans really take the same form. And uh, there's a kind of constant theme, especially amongst anti capitalists and Marxist communists to talk about. Uh, capital has created this want or this need, and, and religion and the state are are a created need, and that's why they're used to control us, to sell this entire narrative. And it really gives domesticators and civilizers way too much credit. Uh, civilization is primarily just maintenance. Um, and it's really just, you know, it's the path of least resistance to form people who are ultimately uh, conscripts and Labor force, military force, whatever it is that you know we are in this case, a lot of us are just post-consumer, whatever um, things drifting along and occasionally going crazy and gunning out in schools and students. Uh, but you you just see how these patterns emerge, and you can see how the the way that this functions, the way that civilization has gotten as far as it has, is by taking. Aspects of us as social animals and tearing them apart and then recapitulating them back to us in a way that befits hierarchy and dominance. Uh, So, you know, you get the rise of religion as the honoring of this narrative about the things that we would feel between each other. When you take a look at the communal dances, the trance dances and things like that. And then you look at religious ritual and it's about just trying to orchestrate the function of those kinds of events and those kinds of happenings into a way that reinforces hierarchy. And you can look at, um, going from the booty who believe that the the spirit of the world is the breath of the forest. There's no cognizant force or anything like that. It's just that all matter, all life, all energy is interconnected and that energy isn't dead. It just has meaning. It doesn't have, it's not a God or anything like it. Um, but, contorting that into a cognizant God that does have uh, a direct impact upon the world and having many gods throughout. And you can look at, you know, basically the higher, the hierarchy, the less gods there are. Um, So, you know, and you have horticultural societies where there's just kind of the fragments of what you would actually consider a God or what from Durkheim's definition of God would be, which is uh, a cognizant where creative force that has direct impact on day-to-day life Um, so you really don't see too much of it in horticultural societies you definitely see it in agrarian societies Um, but it's really just about trying to reinforce this artificial power structure by taking all the things that we want and all the things that we're looking for such as conflict resolution and such as meaning and community and then repackaging and selling them back to us so all this is really just a way of kind of putting out and saying you know, there's there's an entire history to how we get to this point. There's there's a history of where everything that we see comes from and where it's going and how it works and how it functions. And it, it's impossible for me. I and mean, I, I would hope a lot of people to say that, you know, we're just going to think our way out of civilization. We're just going to think our way out of this whole mess by coming up with some philosophical construct that allows us to not use anything because anything that civilization created, anything created within civilization is tainted. Ironically would also include any philosophical discussion about, you know, our words and the way we use them. Everything has caveats and everything has uh, nuance and everything has various parts that are good and bad. And a lot of it has to do with colonial history. Um, you can even look at Las Casas or something like that. I mean, he was a fucking missionary. He had owned, he was a slave owner. Um, but, not going to say it's like, well, I'm going to never read his account of the colonization of the Indies because of that. Uh, And I mean, again, you could even look at the Nazis and uh, they're ardent record keepers. It's not like because they're Nazis, you shouldn't look at the records to understand exactly what it is that they did. Uh, But, you know, we'd understand that we're in a situation that is wholly unnatural and wholly fucked up. uh, And it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take everything at our disposal to get out of it so uh i i think that the whole thing about academic or not it really comes down to you know kind of walling off some certain areas for arbitrary reasons um in terms of like well i'm not going to get into this i'm not going to get into that we're all nerds about something it's just how it is and uh some people make a career of it and some people don't some people get initials behind their name some don't but we're all in this society. We're all specialists at some shit or another. So, you know, just fuck it, whatever. Like, it is what it is. Uh, it's not if you have to come up with reasons to not read something because it's got citations or, or something like that. Cool. You're fucking cool. You win whatever it is you're doing. But rest assured, I've been in arguments with a lot of people who've brought up the academic stuff. And I said, you know. I've been called an academic or for relying on academics too much. Often just don't care. Can't be bothered to care about it. And you know, I've been called that by people who have more degrees than I do. Uh, and of course are academics in the room, right about their own thing. It's a dumb thing to get hung up on. Either your shit is practical or your shit's not. It's all there is to it. I don't care. I don't care about all the nuanced stuff that you got. I don't care about your ideas of, anarchism or anything just being conversations that go on forever or some stupid shit um post uh garbage just we're all just telling stories or whatever uh yeah i don't care if it's got no practical application then i don't care if it does it can be used and you can use it with caveats you can point it out you can say these are the upsides and downsides uh by all means fucking do it and nobody else Outside of these weird philosophical or academic or um, supposedly radical circles is is asking these kinds of questions. Um, it's really just the people who are, you know ironically being the most radical that they think they can be by trying to be against the most things that don't make sense to be against. So brings me to this point. Uh, why I hate philosophy? Philosophy to me, and obviously there's all strands of it. And I'm sure there's philosophers out there that have inspired me in some ways and whatever. Caveats aside, like philosophy itself is just thinking about thinking, the thoughts about thoughts. Um uh, It's all just, to me, very peak domestication. Um And it's not to say that nothing good has ever come of it or nobody's ever been influenced of it in positive ways. It's just that I don't care. And I really get annoyed when people want to take all these conversations to a philosophical place because it's always in the worst ways. It's always in these uh, subjectivist kind of, uh, uh, of course, postmodern, um, but just really philosophical arguments. I and mean, when you get in an argument with somebody who is coming from a philosophical perspective or coming from a philosophical background, Nothing ever is what it is. You just got to try and find ways to box everything up because, of course, everything for a philosopher is just ideas and just theories and just various kind of like, well, so-and-so said this about this and that. I don't care. So the question I got asked uh, was if I'm a realist. Um, This is not far from some bullshit uh, douchebag Bellamy wrote years ago. This whole garbage nonsense thing, um, talking about being being a green platonist. Never read the final thing. It was in Black Seed. It's a piece of shit. Uh, but the earlier version of it was supposed to be a debate about egoism in Black and Green Review between me and Bellmy. Uh, and we had very specifically laid out um, kind of like the guidelines of what we thought the discussion and debate section of Black and Green Review early on was going to be. Would say it's like. Person A presents a point. Person B presents a point. Person A responds to person B. Person B responds to person A. So point, point, response, response. Heavily monitored and mediated to say it's like, you know, are these points being hit on or not? Um, How much can we actually just articulate this as being these points instead of just pinballing back and forth and kind of this anarchist tendency to just want to respond to everything and say nothing? Um, And I was... He was supposed to be going first uh, and making a position for egoism, uh, which I, you don't really get to see. It's a lot of kind of crazy nonsense, especially coming from Sterner. Uh, but it didn't turn into that. It turned into this like 6,000 word rambling thing about how uh, kind of crazy stuff by saying, I can't define domestication. Because for Bellamy, who is uh, literal, and whenever he wants to be and incapable of piecing together thoughts as individuals or as part as a whole, uh, you know, anytime I would say domestication is this or that, I uh, would think that that is me saying this is the definition of domestication. So uh, in the 6,000 word piece, I've used the word domestication in my writing hundreds, if not thousands of times and trying to say I can't define domestication because you can't find a couple places where I said domestication is this or domestication is that. Uh, which I will say things like domestication is bad. Don't care. Easy enough to say. I'm against domestication. I'm anti-civilization, anti-domestication. Domestication is bad. It does not mean my domestic- my definition of domestication is bad. Uh, it's a lot more nuanced than that. It's a lot more complicated than that. You have domestication of plants, of animals, which inquire- requires some degree of force, um, and changing at a genetic or structural level, and you have domestication of humans, which is social in nature. So it's basically, how do you convince these people that this is happening? Of course, there's variations of it. Uh, when you get to civilization, you have force, you have cases of slavery, you have cases of um, internment and things like that, where it is, by every stretch of the imagination, domestication by force, but the the implicit part of it being that domestication in all cases, but particularly in human cases, doesn't result in a change on a genetic level or a change on, on really uh, any basic aspect of what it means for each of us to be born in a mattock hunter gather. We can be convinced. Otherwise we can be living. Otherwise we can be putting a lot of crazy situations as we currently are. um, But the baseline is still there. Like the way that you function is as a social animal functions is as the human animal functions uh too complicated for an egoist uh apparently too complicated for a philosopher that talks like he was raised by two psychologists and nothing ever it is what it is so it's fucking green plateness or whatever according to him and according to that piece of shit and i uh, you know that stuff gets brought up when it's like am i a realist um i don't think about the world in these terms uh I call myself an anarcho primitivist I've been an anarchist for 25 years now. I've been an anarcho primitivist since 1999. Uh, I've been a cultural materialist for a long time. Uh, I put those things out there. Uh, I understand why people don't put any terms on themselves, but for me, it's just shorthand and showing that, like, hey, there's more to these ideas than just what I'm saying or what I'm thinking. For me, that's important. Again, the validation of these claims is just, I'm putting my math out there when I put citations out there, when I put the quotes out there, it's like, this isn't just my ideas. Here it is. Follow it up. See for yourself. I'm talking about wildness. I'm not trying to prescribe uh, dogma or religion or anything like that. I'm saying, these are my experiences. These are how they relate to experiences other people have talked about and how other people have referred to them in ways that resonate with me. And here is wildness. It's just a concept is or just a word that applies to, a relationship that goes beyond words um and here it is this is where it is I, i'm going to be your, your this is my anchor point for this conversation I'm going to nail it down as much as i possibly can and things within your own life things within your own world and and concrete things that exist in our world such as history anthropology ecology biology ethology whatever else that happens day-to-day life and whatever else everybody has as much access to as i do um to to put it out there and my reason is it's one it's this is how i think people talk um when they're not philosophers but uh and how people i would hope interact with each other but you know i i'm not out to get followers i'm not out to get people to just take the things i say and just be like yes i believe all of that without question i recite all this and this is You know, here's my little green book or some shit like that. Some ideological banter for cannon fodder. Uh, I believe that because we're talking about civilization, because I'm talking about civilization and domestication, these things are innately down to the heart and down to the way that we see the world and perceive the world. Uh, So I see any interaction I have with other people as not so much like I'm going to convince you of every single thing here. I mean, of course... I'm such an articulate writer that I'm sure it's happened Whatever, uh, I don't know. Uh, but jokes aside, it's really just about saying I'm going to try and nail in as many points as I can, as many anchor points as I possibly can between history and between what's going on in people's lives and what we see and, ex- and exists in the world and the way that we see and perceive the world ourselves and the way that, Domestication undermines that. So all the things that are brimming beneath the surface that any of us can relate to and any of us can experience, I'm going to try and get as many of those anchor points as possible because I believe, and as I've seen many, many times when you tell somebody that civilization is inherently fucked and that domestication robs us of our, who we are as social animals and cheats us from uh, experiencing life as a part of a whole uh, and puts us on this mission to try and hopefully, you know, get rewarded with heaven or whatever it is, money and, whatever kind of shit civilizations are trying to sell us um, because they're going to, you know, most people are going to reject that out, outright, uh, but they're going to have these experiences. So hopefully try and get as much across as possible and, uh, and as many concrete examples and realities as possible so that as a person is going through their day-to-day life or something like that, then, you know, it's there. It's kind of, planting worms in people's heads that were feeding the soil that already existed, whether or not they wanted to acknowledge it. Um, I don't really have grandiose delusions about how that entire process works. But again, that's why I think it's important to just be real. Um, say what you think. And then if you find things that, that contradict or make things complicated, for me, it's important to dig into those things. Uh, those things are the things that somebody's going to innately find and or, or go towards immediately. And, want to try and reject everything. So I like to speak in very concrete terms. Uh, so being a materialist makes a lot of sense um, because it is about how, uh, how our, our relationships with the world in terms of how we procure or produce our livelihood impact the way that our societies function. There's all different kinds of things about that huge other topic. Anyways, it really boils down to not wanting to try and sugarcoat things, not wanting to lie, not wanting to cherry pick and just present things and, and cover up all the ugliness and try and simplify things to the point where it's just like it's all good or it's all bad in terms of like hunter gather life or things about how, how nature works. Um, but of course, the historical reality and the concrete realities we all see it is that things have changed. And that's why I'm talking to people. That's why I'm doing a podcast. That's why I'm talking to a microphone, hooked up to a computer right now. And I'm gonna to have to upload it and send it out and things like that. Um, obviously, things went wrong. Um, and I, there's no problem in saying that things have gone wrong. And want to the, the idea that comes about from a philosophical angle is kind of like you have to present everything as as though it is now what it has always been uh, in terms of in, like th- for subjectivists and things like that and uh relativists things are what they are uh so you see this trend in anarchism quite often and you see it echoed uh in a lot of activist circles and things like that and places where people are trying to figure out ways to prolong the conversation without having really tangible results um in getting lost in these questions about the words themselves and it's like well if we're going to construct this whole theory if we're going to construct this whole thing you know we can't know any of that stuff because we're saying history and anthropology are bad ironically philosophy is okay Uh, but like you know we got to kind of construct this thing that fits anything so we can't say civilization is bad because that's a moralistic judgment Uh, and what is civilization anyways what's domestication anyways and all this kind of shit that just tosses everything that we do know and everything we have available to us thrown in the trash. So we can have a discussion about discussions instead of just doing what most people do and saying, Oh no, no, the world exists. When you cover your eyes up, it doesn't go away. When animals, when you see an animal doesn't stop existing whenever it's out of your line of sight or some shit, it's like, you know, again, how people interact with the world, how people function in the world. Not everything exists for your purpose. Not everything exists solely within relationship to you uh ultimately we don't fucking matter that much and the fact that we have to create ideologies especially ideologies that are supposed to be liberatory that envelop this idea of individualism and this idea that like you no know, you are special or in sterner's words you are the unique um yeah this is just, just kind of crazy to me so i hate philosophy because nothing is what it is and it grants so much permission to kind of create this whole thing of saying like uh you believe in objective somebody talking to me now so i believe in objective reality therefore i'm platonist because plato believed that reality was real believed a lot of other shit too i don't fucking care guy's been fucking dead i mean like why he's more relevant than the sphere of existence that has happened in the hundreds of billions of other humans that have existed outside of this one dude like yeah the world the world's out here um and you know I get where the impulse is from uh to want to go into the philosophical side because there there's a kind of a safety to it uh and there is kind of a moralistic ideological purity implicit in it in saying that you know we're going to construct the perfect terms we're going to construct the perfect baseline under which we can approach the world in a revolutionary way to cover up for the fact that we're not changing shit about how the world actually functions and the fact that civilization is killing the world. Um, when I first went to college, I was heavily influenced by deep ecology. Um, I was an anarcho syndicalist at the time, a uh, red anarchist, uh, but also a very confused one um, in terms of not having to reconcile the aspects of the syndicalist or worker control aspects of the ideology that I kind of strangely fit under and had de facto kind of fallen into uh, with the fact that I was very ardently uh, supportive of earth first or liberation front animal liberation front uh, indigenous resistance movements, anti extraction uh, protest resistance, activism um, all these things that were innately against civilization and innately against production itself. Um, But in the nineties in particular, there were, there was a degree of, um, you know, anarchist, uh, sectarianism, but it wasn't quite as pronounced as it would become, uh, after 99. Um, and that's why you kind of get some people talking about post-left anarchism and it's kind of a catch-all thing that, that fell about for discussions that were being had in anarchy, a journal of desired arm and for the state in the seventies, eighties and nineties. Um, and it can include things like John Zerzan, who's an Eric Primivist, to uh, Bob Black, Jason McQuinn, uh, Wolfie, or whatever uh, he goes under, uh, Feral Fawn at the time. And it's really this very diverse kind of group that has no consistency other than the fact that people could put it into a category of having these individuals having been leftists and then trying to erode it. Um, John and I both strongly reject post left as a label, um, in terms of our own applications and, and in terms of it being any kind of a coherent critique or anything like that. Um, that's a whole other discussion, but, uh, coming back to that, uh, at, at that time, 99, early two thousands as green Anarchy was just starting to happen and green anarchist was already an Eric's publication in the UK. Um, but Green Anarchy was started out by a somebody who had been a former editor of Green Anarchists in the UK, was a very liberal Green Anarchist, um, and nothing like what it would become after the editorial change around issue four and five. Um, so talking about, I don't even know, I'm guessing on the top of my head, between 2000 and 2002, uh, at which point... Green Anarchy went from this entire section of anarchy where people from Grant Purchase to um Murray Bookchin where the social ecologists and things like that were thrown under it to us just getting the new wave of green anarchy out there and just saying this is green anarchy is innately anti civilization. Uh I was some backlash and there was a lot of whatever, but it, it kinda went without too much of a fight. Um and it became a lot more obvious to say it's like uh, there's these sides of anarchism, the green-red split or whatever, that really was pretty massive in terms of just being able to say, it's like, oh, okay, the inconsistencies we had between the red stuff and between the green stuff were more obvious. And of course, these discussions have been having had, been had in primarily in a Joda anarchy magazine, um, but extrapolating a lot more and becoming a lot more apparent and a lot easier to just say, oh, yeah, all those inconsistencies and my ideas can't coexist as they had amongst the magazine like live wild or die which was kind of a precursor to green anarchy in a way um but you had red anarchist stuff you had green anarchist stuff you had articles about uh sinking whalers and you had articles about unions uh so it's kind of this weird punkish uh 90s world where you could coexist in all these realms and not have to reconcile the differences so that said, at the time, deep ecology for me was a, a way to really contextualize a lot of those arguments. And I, I tend to put uh, the difference between deep ecology and anarcho as being deep ecology recognized that population was the primary issue uh, and as is innately a biocentric or, or you know, earth centric view of the world and anarcho went further and it's like, well, where did the population rise come from? It didn't just come from nowhere. So, anarcho was more innately focused on the roots of civilization, the origins of civilization, and deep ecology is more just like a perspective. Um, and very radical things came about about it from it. Earth First was founded on, above all else, uh, deep ecology, biocentrism, and it created a lot of action and a lot of activity, but that's also why the people who started Earth First are just you know kind of douchebags um, in a lot of regards, so they could be very sexist pro border just because it's it really came down to like we're trying to deal with this problem as it is um and trying to to find things like say how do we deal with population um instead of saying like what are the things that happened in the world that made population going to, possible to explode so it was a philosophical perspective uh, the practice of it was equal parts earth first and for some reason amongst deep ecologists, uh, deep powder skiing. Uh, okay, well, I, I don't know, but it's kind of an ethos. It's kind of a, a worldview, but it's very much philosophical. Uh, it, it's not interested so much in where these things came from as it is in saying, like, here's a problem we need to address, and we don't need to dig too much deeper. So let's talk about it. And that's why deep ecology has been home for some eco-fascists. Uh, And people who are going to say, it's like, well, the problem is population, so we need to thin the population. Uh, Whereas, you know, anarcho-primis critique would say population explosions happen because of technology making them possible and sedentism removing a lot of the variables that kept uh, nomadic hunter-gatherer band population relatively in check. And you didn't have to have so much in terms of infanticide and geronticide and warfare. Uh, Ecological reactions to or I'm sorry, social, uh, political reactions to an ecological situation. So for me, that hatred was kind of like building because I thought philosophy could be a way of understanding the world as it is and trying to, to pull these pieces together. Uh, and it was very quickly realizing that wasn't the case. And there was people that when I went to college and I was, was first starting out with philosophy, um, that I like getting in arguments with, I could get along with those people, and it could be kind of this interesting thought experiment until one day I just really started battling heads with some people who were nihilists. Um, that I generally agreed with, and I, I did at the time have a lot more sympathy towards nihilism. And uh, as a vegan and deep ecologist, you know, could even be prone towards misanthropy because I hadn't done the digging. It's like, oh, well, humans are this way, which of course we aren't. Um, uh, but you know, getting into the arguments with, with some of these people and uh, things that I generally agreed with them on some degrees. And it's like, and then talking about aspects of eco-feminism or things like that and seeing this in- insanely visceral response. And you, know, you talk about capitalism and control and things like that. And you get this kind of insane response when they would break the character a little bit. Uh, and it stopped being a little more philosophical and you realize, Hey, there could actually be implications to this. Um, other than, you know, grandstanding, supporting uh, ideological moves as many of the great philosophers were in fact fascists and breeding into fascist systems. But, um, you know, it started to get the picture. It's like, okay, this is thought experiments. These people are all going into public relations. Um, this one nihilist guy that I generally could kind of get along with a bit. Whenever we started battle heads, it just came out. He's like, I want to work as an ad exec for a cigarette company. Like this is all just practice for arguing with people and positing things that are insane. And of course, this isn't to say this is where a lot of people take philosophy or everybody takes philosophy, but you can see, or I could see from this instance and talking to a number of these people, it's like, oh yeah, that's right. You're just, you just want to argue. You just want to talk. You just want to have these conversations and sh- imply meaning and really nothing's going to change. Um, and if it does, it's usually for the worst. Uh, and it's all because you can distract from what is actually happening in the world by just going off into this land of make believe, where it's all just ideas, where we could say it's like, yes, what is happening? Uh, just pulling an example at the time, talking about dna and uh, fighting Peabody Cole um, in the four corners. I can say it's like, yes, these things are bad, but what is reality? And we can get lost in this whole other thing. We're subjective experiences. Like this sounds bad, but I think these people want this, and we can get council elders, and we can get people um from tribal councils that say that, that that coal extraction or uranium extraction things like that are good so whose story is what and who's to say anything about the way the world is we can just sit here and get lost in all these beautiful ideas and try and put together beautiful words um to replicate it and it really you know well let's bring it back and this is the thing that you see the most in the anarchist world let's talk about the words uh and the worst of it will come down to it's like we can't say anything unless we treat it as a standalone argument and it has to define every term within it. And by the time you do that, you're saying nothing. Uh, it's just all it is. You're just is. We're just defining these terms as we see them because reality is subjective. It is just how I see it and how I experience it. There's no objective reality. Um, and that's why, you know, getting in a lot of arguments with people coming from that more philosophical perspective is the, the point that keeps coming back up is like we just see the world in innately different ways and that could be painted as like realism versus whatever fucking other bullshit term that exists out there but really for me it's just like you know is this a philosophical thing or is this this a practical reality uh and arguing with egoists arguing with people who are against or you know very happy to spend their time uh trying to figure out some ideological construct they think that I think wildness represents or how they think that I see wildness as a religious experience rather than anything I've ever actually said. um, It just gets lost in these circles. And it's like, you know, I go through this, been through this many, many times. And after having these arguments so much, anytime I see it, it's just like, fuck it. We're not talking about the same thing. We're not looking at the world through the same eyes. We can go through the whole thing. I can explain to you, you know, the nature of language, the nature of symbolic thought, symbolic culture, how civilization managed to kind of pull us away. The domestication process manages to pull us away so far from the world as it is that we only see through its eyes. We can only interpret it through its language. Um, But at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, you can pick apart all the words. And we do. We, we do a good degree of it and through our primitivism and we question the entirety of it. But that's within context. It's not just about language. It's not just about numbers. It's not just about the printed word and, and social media and things like that. It's like, where do these things come from? Where are they going? And how are they used? Where are the practical applications of them? Where do they begin? And more importantly than any of that, by understanding where they begin, how do we end them? And that all of these things have an end. And if we're not talking about this, if we're not talking about, you know, fighting civilization, if we're not if we're not able to talk about civilization as as an entity, as a historical process, or as a historical creation that exists within our own lives and threatens them at the exact same time, I don't want to have that conversation. And to me, the, I could be wrong. People might take this different ways. Whatever, sue me. Um, I don't get the point of those conversations. Um, I'm sure they're fun. I'm sure they're entertaining. I'm sure you can get a very good self-righteous feeling from them. Uh, but it's it's not a conversation I'm interested in having. So when a conversation goes to that point where it's just like, you know, are we talking about objective reality? And people are saying it like it's the fucking worst thing they ever heard. And I might as well be a Christian or some shit. A conversation over. Period. And done. That's all there is to it. We don't see this world in the same way. I'm not wasting any more time on this. I've had this conversation, this argument enough. That's it. So, now I'm putting it out here. Hopefully it happens slightly less often. It is not going to. That's for sure. But uh, if I stop it from having it one time, that's fine with me. You can have that conversation with plenty of other people. I'm sure there's plenty of people who are fucking stoned off their ass and they want to talk about, well, bro, whoa, like, what's real? Is reality real? Have fun. Uh, Me, it's very simple. Reality is objective. Experience is subjective. So there you have it. Uh, And I just threw a whole bunch of philosophy and a whole bunch of everything into one category just because, you know, a whole series of books that have icebergs as metaphors on the cover uh, aren't going to get my interest in the matter any more than it is. And as it stands with history... Ecology, ethology, anthropology. There's plenty more shit that we know about the world that we don't have to sit here and second guess about and debate about um, whether it exists or not uh, and actually get to something that matters. Uh, So that's where I'm at. uh, And that's the importance, I think, of having anything grounded. So rant over for now. We'll see. It'll probably come back. And I may or may not choose to acknowledge if it does because i think i've spent enough time on it um we'll see so uh that's that and uh just to kind of rehash some things here uh the podcast is black and green podcast and you want more information you want to submit questions comments feedback tell me to fuck myself whatever i don't give a shit uh you can send that all through uh blackandgreenreview.org there's a page for the podcast and it's got a form on there so you don't even have to actually send me an email um, if you don't want to or you can send an email to at gmail.com um, and I will do my best to respond seriously to any serious things that come across um, and uh, yeah, potentially mock other things. I don't care. Send what you got. Uh, let me know what you think or don't. Um, of course, it's very helpful if you support both black and green and the podcasts. And of course I'm going to plug my own work. Uh, I do spend a lot of time and money on doing this stuff. And if you like what I'm doing, if you like my books, if you like my work, if you like black and green review, if you like the podcast, any donations or anything like that are very helpful on that page. You can donate through PayPal or sign up through Patreon or whatever. But really, if you're interested buy the books, tell people about them, talk to people in real life, and of course i've been very reluctant to do a podcast uh one reason is that i've always been hopeful that doing actual physical books doing real world projects and things like that can kind of bring back some of the things that we had going on forever um and actually having face-to-face discussions um and things like that so uh we used to be able to get a lot of money for projects by doing university gigs so students I don't have a whole lot of connection with a lot of you these days, but uh, it seems to have been forgotten that you're able to pull funds from schools to get speakers. Myself, John, I think four-legged human as well uh, from Black and Green Press, Black and Green Review, are always interested in in doing speaking gigs and engaging with people and workshops and anything like that. Uh, If you're at a school and you can have access to a group that can help, get some funding to get us out there. That'll mean that we can get out to a different area than we're currently in and uh, maybe do some workshops and things like that. Uh, Always open to do talks. Always open to uh, do anything in real life over talking into a microphone while facing a wall. Um, So that said, uh, those are the ways to support it. Those are the ways to help spread the word. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, talk to you next time.